Welcome back to another episode of Trades Talk. We're here today with Lisa Choate. Lisa is the CEO and sole owner of West Coast Mechanical Insulation. She operates this business in Milpitas, California, in the Bay Area, and runs a team of a little over 20 union mechanical insulation professionals. Her background is in high tech, and we go all over the course of her history from high tech running over 1,100 salespeople to where she is today, breaking down barriers as the woman-owned business. Maggie, what were some of your big takeaways that the listeners can look forward to? Well, as you said, the first biggest takeaway for me was woman-owned business side of things. Lisa is so well-spoken. She's a diverse person in this industry. You know, she, <laughs> I think the funniest thing she said in, in the podcast was, people a lot of times think that she's a hairdresser when they say she owns a business, not a mechanical insulation company. And I found that really relatable for as someone myself who works in a male dominated industry that, you know, seeing her pioneer the way her way through this industry, as well as doing it through some pretty significant life struggles. She opens up to us about how navigating some things she's gone through in her time owning the business, co-owning the business, how she transitioned out of that. And it was just a great all-around conversation for any business owner who faces struggles in their day-to-day lives. Yeah. She gives us the the real story and talks us through that transition of going from a partnership to a sole owner and how she bought her partner out, which good, bad, ugly, whatever the situation is, buying someone out is always emotional. It's always difficult. And her story, how she did that, the lessons she learned, the financing she got. I think that's great information for our listeners to take home. And whether you're looking to exit today or in 25 years, it's always good to have some type of an idea of what that looks like. And Lisa shares some really key points with us. Yeah, absolutely. And she works in such a niche business that she actually defined herself as a second line sub. So she's subcontracting to somebody who is a subcontractor. And I feel like a lot of times in any sort of trades business, we all can find ourselves in that position and she navigates it really well and uses that to grow and leverage and build relationships. And there are great things coming for this business. It's going to, I feel like now that it's under sole leadership of Lisa, it's just going to take off significantly. So Real excited to see where this thing goes and excited for our listeners to listen to what Lisa has to say. Should we get into it, Justin? Yeah, I could talk all day about the takeaways here, but let's leave it to the episode. Let's dive in. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have you on the pod. And why don't you just give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself and about your business and your story? Thanks, Maggie. So um, first of all, congratulations to you and Justin. These podcasts have provided nuggets of great information on my commute to and from work every day. Um, I think podcasts are a great way to continue your education, right? Especially as a business owner, it's it's obviously uh, easy to do when you're stuck behind a, a windshield for a part of the day. It's a great way to uh, continue your personal growth. So as Maggie said, my name is Lisa, Lisa Choate. I am the owner and CEO of a commercial insulation company, West Coast Mechanical Insulation. We are based in Milpitas, California, which is basically in the Silicon Valley. We are a specialized insulation service. When I say insulation and I tell people about insulation, they generally think about their home. They think about walls and ceilings and blow-in stuff, but we're actually quite sophisticated and, and quite specialized. Commercial insulation, mechanical insulation is just that we insulate mechanical systems. So think HVAC. We also do a lot of plumbing work. Um, we do a lot of process piping. We do some sound abatement. And we're starting to explore more on the fire protection services around, think about um, the insulation that would go around ductwork to prevent fires from spreading into other areas of the building. West Coast Mechanical is about 16 years old. We just celebrated our 16th fiscal year on September 30th. I have a crew of about 20. We are a union uh, company. So all of my guys are specialists and mechanics out of uh, Benicia, California. 
And that's where we are today. Lisa, great background and story. And I'm glad you elaborate a little more on the services you provided, because I think a lot of listeners are looking at this and thinking, oh, it's insulation that goes in between the walls or in the attic of a home. But you guys, and you guys are mostly, I'm assuming commercial. We are only commercial, Justin. So I'm not even licensed for residential. So our, the typical project for us would be a light industrial or commercial building. So you could think hospitals, schools, um, we do a lot of, you know, clean rooms. We do a lot of, a lot of classrooms. I mean, you name it, coffee shops, Valley Fair Mall, San Jose airports, you know, like we, we do all kinds of commercial buildings and it is very specialized. There's a lot of, think about ductwork being insulated on rooftops. That's probably 50% of our business. And then plumbing that needs to be insulated for condensation issues, right? In clean rooms, situations like that. Awesome. And are you guys typically in these situations working as a subcontractor to a general contractor, or do you work with directly with the property owners? How do you guys handle that? Great question. We are what you would call a second tier sub. So we actually, our customers are mechanical companies and plumbing companies. So you'd have one large general contractor, a building developer, they would hire a plumbing company. They would hire a mechanical engine and mechanical company to come in and refine their mechanical drawings, their duct work, their HVAC systems, et cetera. We come in as their customers. So a second tier sub, we're pretty far removed from that large general contractor. And I can speak to that later about some of the gotchas with that, right? I'm sure there's some benefits, but also some challenges with Mm -hmm. very little leverage around getting paid or other Mm. challenges with that. Mm -hmm. So we'll definitely dig into that RFI and communication process that I'm sure you guys have to go through. Right, right. So before you got into the mechanical insulation business, give us a little bit of background of what Lisa was up to before that. Thanks. Yeah. So it's interesting because I spent 22 years working in high tech and you tend to think like, well, what's, what was that pivot about, right? Like, how did you end up going from high tech in a, in a operations marketing role to commercial insulation? So when I was in high tech for 22 years, I was focused primarily on the sales team, the entire, my entire career there. My first five years, I actually sat out in the field with a sales team in a sales support role. And as I mastered their sales process and I could see and identify the areas that were needed for development to help them be more efficient at their jobs, I moved into marketing. And then eventually I, I worked in field marketing for a while, had different roles there, but always working on sales process and the infrastructure and the tools and the behaviors to empower our sales team, make them more efficient. Um, you know, response time to customers, things like that. So I spent a lot of my time doing that. Eventually I ended up running the global marketing operations team. So now I was focused on a global audience. So if you think about setting up a process, right, for your, um, your sales team to be more efficient, you have to now consider language barriers and process barriers and the infrastructure in the field. I could, I could imagine that if you're a large construction company and or business and you have multiple locations, field offices, it's really hard for those that are removed from the, the, he- the headquarters of the office to leverage what they do at corporate. So this was my job was to come in and make sure that our entire sales team, I'm talking about 1,100 people, could all manage their sales process, the communication process, all in the same manner. Wow. So a quick question. I'm sure Maggie's going to have some questions here too. And I'd love to talk sales with you, Lisa. Maggie runs a large sales team, not quite 1,100, but but getting there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we talk sales process, how important is it for a company to have a sales process or a sales playbook, even if they only have three or four salespeople? Oh, I think regardless of size, you have to have a sales playbook and you have to have the discipline and the process. And I can actually speak to that about the growth that we've had this year, because it's 100% about sales process and communications with customers. It has nothing to do with my sales executive that left with zero transition. It had everything to do about how we handled things consistently with the team, communication, response time to the customers, follow-up. 
entirely through the sales process. For some customers, it would be about lead flow, qualifying those leads. What does that look like for your team? So to get that sales playbook, know what your strategy is for the year, have consistent processes shared throughout so you can plug and play people and positions, but everyone knows, you know, kind of what quote unquote the Bible is for your sales plays. Um, it's critical. I think you, you can, um, really leverage and be more efficient in how you operate, especially if you're a large company with field offices or remote sales teams. Yeah, absolutely. A sales playbook, that's music to my ears. I'm a big fan of a good sales playbook. Um, as Justin noted, I do manage a large sales team and instilling the same practices, consistency among the team is something we, we very much so stress. And it's unique to the trade. So the industry that you're in, um, we don't see the best sales practices all the time. We don't see these companies, whether it be landscape, plumbing, electrical, HVAC, whatever it be, having true salespeople with a sales playbook. So give me some some tips and some tools that you do, you utilize in your company in your sales playbook. Yeah. So, you know, we're trying to look at keeping in mind that I just transitioned into this buyout, right? So I'm actually... I've been more focused on a triage mode and just bringing consistency around process from a playbook standpoint. We're now sitting down. My team has never done this before. They're mechanical insulators. This right. is all everything we're talking about, including the TLAs, right? The three letter acronyms. They're just like, whoa, what? What's happening here? So just getting a foundation and a basic understanding of what the terminology means, what the strategies are, the behaviors. I think that's really, I think that's really important is just getting everyone on the same platform first. Yeah, starting with the basics. And it's it's great to hear that even you, who's, who's someone who's preached playbook for a long time, back to the beginning, you're instilling it in your company right now. It's never mm -hmm. too late to have it. So um, you did talk about a little bit about it, about a transition period. So tell us about the company. And I know very recently you went through a transition, pretty big impact for the company. Can you speak a little bit to that? Because I think our, our listeners would resonate with that and learn from, from what that transition looks like. Yeah, I think, um, I think my story would probably resonate with any, any small business that has, uh, two partners that, that own the company equally or not. But as long as there's two players at the top, those owners, business owners, or the leadership team needs to have a plan in place. And, and honestly, that's where we fell down, I think in the last two years, which made my transition even harder. So if you are a small business or you're expanding your business, you're bringing on more partners, really define not only roles and responsibilities, but as well as an exit strategy, potentially what happens if one of those people leaves, right? So for context, my story is that I talked about being in high tech in 2007, I got married and my husband at the time was a mechanical insulator. He was also part of the same union that we hire out of. And he, this was, this was his career. And when he started, um, when I, when we were first married, he and his brother were in the business together and they had assumed that it was multi-generational. So this was just something that was in their blood. This is what their dad did. And they had a nice little business going, you know, provided a nice lifestyle. I don't think that they would have ever imagined that we would be where we are today when they had those conversations. But as uh, my marriage progressed and I, and I saw the frustration that my partner had, my ex-husband, we decided to start our own company and, and West Coast Mechanical Insulation was born. And here was the really interesting part. I had my own career in high tech, right? I was traveling the world, process infrastructure. But when we went to incorporate, our CPA said, hey, Lisa, you're going to be 51% owner and CEO. And I was like, I don't have time for another job, right? Like, what are we doing here? Little did I know 16 years ago, just how prophetic that was going to be. Because here we are in 2023 where it matters. So we took it on and I went about my way. And in 2014, I left high tech and took about a year off and just enjoyed my time off after 22 years of the grind and started to started to watch the business a little bit with, with my, with my husband at the time. And I could see he was getting overwhelmed. And Justin, I think you'd asked me like, what were, you know, we've talked about like, what are some critical pieces? Like what's, 
what would be three things a company needs, right? Yeah. And I think those things are, you need the mechanic or the tradesperson, the operator, right? The one yeah. that's going to go out on the tools to do the work. You need a marketing and salesperson. And when you're a small business, by the way, sometimes it's the mechanic, right? <laughs> But yeah. then you also have to have a savvy business person in the background and someone who can be everything from HR to payroll to, you know, tax prep who can read a PL and a balance sheet. And unfortunately, I think this is an area that some companies, small companies especially, struggle with because you have a mechanic who tries to be everything. There's not enough time in the day, nor is there the skill set. So my advice on that, and I'll and I'll get back to why this ties into my story is that get someone specialized in those in those three areas if you can at a minimum get the business person and the mechanic right the person on the tools whether you're pushing a lawnmower or nope. sheet metal on some duct insulation right the reason i bring that up is because when i started and i and i started to dig in rolled up my sleeves and and my husband at the time said look i really need your help it's it's outgrown me right and we were doing about six or $700,000 a year. So not big. It was, you know, a couple of guys and, but it was getting overwhelming for him and he couldn't keep up. So now response to customers, there's certain levels of um, paperwork that you need. We do a lot of public works jobs and they are very diligent on the certified payroll aspect of those jobs. So keeping up with union fringes and dues, all of that. So as I got involved, I thought, wow, this is, while I was looking for a new role in in high tech, I noticed that there's a lot of things that I can do here uh, to, to help, you know, offload some of the burden. And then I got involved in 2014 and by 2018, we quadrupled our business. Wow. And that, yeah, that's incredible growth. And you guys went from that mid six, seven, 800,000 a year to I'm guessing two or 3 million. Oh, we were doing close to 4 million. Oh my gosh. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's an amazing wow. growth in a mm -hmm. short amount of time. And you guys, that was, that was purely about allowing the sales guy and the mechanic to go do their jobs, right? Stay in his lane and allowing someone to just pick up the work in the office, making sure you made payroll on time, getting those fringes and those benefits turned in time, right? Paying your insurances, the workman's comp, managing all of that. So in some ways I went from this like glorified this, this amazing operations job where I was traveling the world to know I'm kind of a glorified business administrator. Right. <laughs> um, and, and the interesting part was, is our business was maybe a fourth of the size of what was once my marketing global marketing budget that I had to manage. So to me, this was a no brainer to manage this level of financials. So Mark and I continue to work together. Um, things were going well, we quadrupled the business and, you know, crews are growing. We are unions, so we have the ability to pull resources as we need, which is great. And then eventually, um, a few years back, so about three years ago, Mark and I decided to end our marriage. And uh, ugly detail, right? But okay. here we go. So we both looked at each other and said, you know, what really is a shame about this is we're really good at the business stuff because we both had our own lanes. So as two partners, whether you're husband and wife or two brothers or two cousins, two friends, you know, we had very defined roles. So the only interaction we had is when, you know, I saw receivables slowing down and I needed him to stop and do some invoicing. That was about the only time there was any kind of, you know, cross pollination of us having to talk together. And then of course I was the P and L and the balance sheet person and the tax preparer. So when he, um, when our marriage split up, we actually, we decided to keep the business going. Let's see if we can do this, right? We, we got accustomed to being our own bosses. We had our own ideas, but we purposely made the decision not to tell our employees. Wow. I wanted okay. to, my strategy was I didn't want them to know or be nervous. And that was surely out of my fear of losing our amazing employees. I didn't want them to start to say, oh, here we go, right? The company's going to dissolve. So my partner and I, we continue to work together. We did tell our superintendent because he was with us and he's the one that interfaced with both of us all day long. But 
he was surprised himself. So we did, we kept it under wraps until we felt like it was an appropriate time to tell our employees. And after about six months, we did let them know. A few of them said, oh, we thought something might be going on, but we weren't sure. But for us, they already saw the trend as two partners working together without any impact to the business. And that was my goal. And that was my strategy was to make the split between us personally, whatever differences we had not bleed over into the business. And we did a very good job of that. My partner and I, I think we did that really well. Yeah, Lisa, I just want to ask you a little bit more about that because I think as leaders, we're we're always on stage. We're always in the show light. People are always looking to us as how is the business doing based on our mood or how we show up every day to the office or the job site. Mm -hmm. So as you're going through what must be a very emotional and challenging time personally, how are you able to continue and show up in a positive fashion for your team, for your guys in the field day in and day out? You know, how were you able to do that? How was Mark able to do that? What were some of the techniques that you guys employed during that time? Uh, good question. So if I think back to it, I think we both were just really focused on keeping the business going because one, neither one of us wanted to go find another job, right? So there was, motivation. <laughs> it was, there was a lot of motivation. We've had a nice lifestyle business, right? Neither one of us were willing to give that up. Um, we shared, we had shared responsibilities, right? We were both had our own lanes that we were responsible for and dependent on each other to do that. Because at the end of the day, there was motivation there to keep the business going. And for me personally, it was really important to me that we kept the 20 families fed that worked for us. That was my driving factor. Yeah. So it sounds like you had motivation personally, you had motivation to uphold that commitment you made to the employees. And then and it sounds like you mentioned this multiple times. You guys had clear lanes and clear roles mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. the responsibilities for you and for your partner. And it sounds like for your superintendent as well. And it also sounds like on the back end, you had alignment around those roles and responsibilities. I, I have definitely seen where you may have clear roles and responsibilities, but not everyone's in alignment around those. And that's where the friction really impacts the rest of the company. I think those are just really some great points to to put out and for people to take away that no matter how stressful, how challenging things are, continue to show up for your employees. You made a commitment to them and clear roles and responsibilities. That's huge. That's right. That's exactly, that was our intent. And I felt pretty good about how we executed on that. So now that you've transitioned to take over the company by yourself, Mm -hmm. How have you not only filled the gap of the, the role, the lane that, that he covered, but also how is culture now that it's just Lisa? If I look back to, and this is where it got challenging. And this is when I say, when you have two partners, be very clear about what the intentions are. I knew that my partner at some point in his mind, he's a couple of years older than me. He's done this business for 40 years. He was kind of ready to be done right? He's been out there working on the tools and managing the business. And, you know, I've been his partner with them, but it was his grind for a long time. And so he, I could see the writing on the wall. I could see that he was starting to transition out less time at work, not so responsive on the phone calls. Although I knew that because that was something we talked about, even as when we were uh, business owners together that maybe at some point we would sell the company in the Rolodex for, you know, a couple million dollars and be done, right? This was very different. We went our different ways and he had very different intentions than I did. I'm like, okay, let's do this. Let's get into this women-owned business and let's, let's go explore opportunities. How do we grow the business? Do we go wide and deep, right? What do we do? And he was checking out and he was ready to transition, rightly so. He deserved it. But as partners be very clear about what the long-term intent is, right? Have a timeline. I'm now looking out 10 years from now, I hope to retire. And I'm already looking at my predecessors at, at the business. And I, I, by the way, I tell them start saving now because it's going to be worth a whole lot more in 10 years than it is right now. That's my plan. Love it. Love it. Yeah. So um, I think having that clarity about what the intent is, you know, legally or not, whether you're partners and there's legal documentation, we are incorporated. So, you know, lots of movement around that. And at one point, 
Maggie, when I saw my partner starting to make that transition and just ready to move on, I thought this is where I need to step up, right? I, I used to do a lot of working from remotely, especially obviously during COVID. I should have known something when my, my partner went to the office every day during COVID and there was no work going on and I was, I was at home. So that's kind of the laughing joke. But um, once I saw him starting to make that transition, I knew I had to, I had to make my presence known. My team, the guys, they all know who I am. And they, you know, they joke that I was always the big boss, right? Because I was the one with the receipts that I needed and hours and all of that. So I think when we decided to make the transition and how we got here was I started looking at how do I get that? What's it take to be, to claim that I'm a woman owned small business? There's a federal process that you have to go through. And I started down that lane and there were two things that were happening. My partner was the license holder for the C2 contractor's license. And I knew that if something happened to him, we would be out of business. And I'm going to speak, I can speak to that a little bit about like the dependencies you have on a single individual, right? The what not to do. So I knew that as him being the license holder, I needed to look at what that meant um, for us if he did retire at some point. In parallel to that, I'm trying to secure my women-owned small business license and I'm making great progress through, you know, all the bureaucracy and red tape. And then all of a sudden I'm told, oh, you actually have to be the license holder. Yeah. Little wow. unknown, right? I was like, wait, what? <laughs> so what's happening? So sure enough, I do my diligence and now I'm going to go get my commercial insulation license. So I sign up. And I take my night classes and I study the material. And I'm like, I never thought I would use pie again as a formula in my life. And I'll be honest with you, don't love it. But I secured my, C my C2 license. And at that point, I felt much better about if anything did happen to my partner, whether he was retiring or not, you know, God forbid something bad happens, we could still function as a company. So I got my C2 license, my partner was making the transition. And so we start the buyout process. And that wow. was, that's been a year and a half of, of um, buyout. And I'd love, I think, so this whole buyout process, especially when you're not just selling, but you're buying another partner out, it's such a difficult, touchy, emotional process. And money obviously is at the, at the core of a big part of that conversation. I I've gone through this with my mom, uh, 2015, we bought her out of the business. And so I have a little bit of experience with it. I'd love to dig into that a little bit, if you don't mind and talk a little bit about how did you guys come up with what is the business worth? And is, did you get a loan or did you just cash them out? Or is now, is there a financing with a promissory note as much detail that you feel comfortable sharing? I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are potentially going into this situation where they're purchasing the business from their parents or a partner or what have you. And that could be very valuable. Yeah, it's definitely an eye-opening process to go through. And I learned a lot going through this myself. I don't know of anyone specifically that went through this process and maybe Justin, you and I should have talked at some point earlier, <laughs> but um, I, my first thought was like, how the heck am I going to do this? Right. And of course, when you're the seller, there's a significant value on the company all of a sudden, right? Oh, it's worth a uh, ton. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth a ton. It's not unlike if you were selling your personal, your home, right? When you're selling your home, you don't see all the nuts and bolts and things that are falling apart. You see something that you raised, you know, there's value to your family and relationship and dynamics. So the value that you put on your home is different than what a, a buyer might see. Same thing goes here with the, with the company buyout. You've got someone who wants more money and you've got someone who wants to pay less money. We actually agreed in the very beginning, and, and this was a point of contention that I'll share with your audience is not unlike the divorce, what's the date of separation? Uh, right, right. Right. When did you announce your retirement? Because to me, I received an official notice from him saying, this is my day of retirement, but then kind of stuck around for another year while I was working and improving the business. So 
I'll be completely transparent. The point of contention here was, well, why do you continue to profit off of the work that I'm doing? And was the business growing during this one year period in value in in some ways? Yeah, I'm thinking about that question, right? So I would say, I would say it had stabilized. Mm -hmm. For me, knowing that my partner, who was the key sales guy, the sales executive with all the relationships and the Rolodex, the fact that we were able to maintain and stabilize and not lose market share was significant for me. That was as much value as if we'd grown the business 20%, to be honest with you, because there were so many unknowns, right? Totally understand that. Yep. Yeah. There's, you got to shift your focus to that. You got to shift your focus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You just, you're just grateful that things are still plugging away and you got all guys still working every day. Right. Um, So I think that would be a big point of, again, aligning with expectations, you know, having a timeline, understanding and having it in some cases, I would say legally crafted as to what those dates of, you know, separation are, what's the formal retirement date. Um, because it can it can continue to bleed, right? In some ways, I was anxious to get the transaction over with because I had all these ideas about how I want to grow the business, and I didn't want this thing to go on for years, you know, while I'm working and and um, the forty nine percent owner is off retired in another state. So really important fact there. So the process is this. Um, you, we both seeked out legal representation, not because it was nasty, but it's because there's a lot of legal documentation that you need. We agreed to an evaluation. So we interviewed several appraisers and I did have to go in and interview five to seven appraisers specifically because we're a very niche construction company. Um, the market, you know, it's, it's, it's a very niche market as well. So it took a while to find references for that. And, and that was um, really talking to insurance brokers and you know other business contacts that you have. Talk to other business owners that you might know if you ever find yourself in this position. So <clears throat> hired an appraiser. Yeah, don't mm-hmm. jump, and don't jump on the first appraiser just because that's what they do. Find one that's in your sector, understands what your trade is, right? Oh, a thousand percent. Yeah. And it knows okay. the trends of what it means when, you know, your sales guy leaves and you've got your small construction company, um, a lot of dependencies, second tier sub, what's the economy look like, right? There's so many factors. Money's expensive the last couple of years. So, or, you know, at least in the last six months, which yep. you know, we'll talk about that SBA loan I got, but um, I think, you know, coming to an agreement on that. So we, we were very close to our first agreement on the value of the business. And all of a sudden there's this word called, he's a key man in the business. And I, what does that mean? So again, I had to go figure out that there's some contingencies around that terminology in regards to what he's entitled to, your partner might be entitled to with a key man kind of identifier associated with them. So then that discussion ensued. And now, now there's that discussion about, you know, what other things the company is going to continue to pay for through the years after your retirement, things like that. The challenge became, as I mentioned earlier, that date of separation, I'll call it, that retirement date. We couldn't agree on what the date was. And it kept slipping. They kept wanting to push it out because now they're seeing a turn. By the way, during this time, every month, I'm providing all my financials. So every month, I'm providing my P&L and my balance sheet. There was nothing. Nothing was hidden. Everybody had access. I had an online portal. Everyone had access to the same documentation, but it was a grind. Every month I had to prepare those financial statements and, and post them so they could start to see the trend of the business, right? So I was like, we got to get this. We got to end this. Um, so then here came the disagreement on the on the date of separation, the, the, the day that he retired and what he was entitled to. So that meant we both had to go find our own appraisers. Because this appraiser backed out. He's and part of it was he said, This is a contentious situation. It's divorce. And we kind of laughed because we weren't feeling like it was a divorce situation. We were just two partners that couldn't agree. Um, but they kept wanting to label it with the, the divorce situation. So we agreed, okay, we're both gonna go get our own appraisers. We'll meet in the middle and we'll find out what that looks like. He used the most current date, 
where I had been more involved in the business. And I wanted to use the original date of his retirement after several months and a lot of work on me as, you know, CFO, CEO, person running the business, a lot of financial statements and documentation and, and interviews. So do expect to be interviewed by those appraisers, right? They're going to talk, they talked to both my partner and I, and then we came up with two numbers and they were pretty close. And so we were able to, um, have he and I actually, we took the attorneys out of it at some point and said, look, you know, we know what the reality is about the business. Your value is it's overinflated. And, you know, we were never going to do that. Like it's, it's, it's kind of over the top. And so after we talked through that, I said, look, if, if this is the number you want, we're going to be out of business. And those 20 guys that have provided this amazing lifestyle for both of us, they're not going to have jobs. And to me, I could have gone back into high tech with a lot less worry, big bonuses and a legit vacation. But to me, it was about keeping the guys and their families going now. Right. So yeah. that's, and, and, and finally we agreed. And then yeah. August 10th this year, signed the papers. Wow. So very fresh, very new. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Congratulations. Thanks. How did you go about securing the funding for the buyout? So I'm sure that's a lot of questions people have when they're thinking about buying out a partner or, or divorce, similar to you are, how do, how do you go about the funding side of things? Yeah, that's a great question because I wasn't sure myself, right? I was like, well, am I, am I doing this thing? Is this a promissory note? Which by the way, that's legally binding as well. So, you know, my advice to anybody doing this, don't go meet your partner for coffee and then get it notarized. Like you have to really go through the legal process to get this done. Don't, you know, don't think that something you write down on a piece of paper is, not going to, they're not going to hold your feet to it later. So spend the extra few dollars and get some legal representation in that process, um, as well as go find a good broker. I had called my, my mortgage broker and who I've known for 20 years. And I said, look, if I do this thing and I buy this business, is it going to impact me personally? Right. Is it going to show up on my credit report? Keeping in mind that we are incorporated, but our company is on the, you know, we're, we're not a huge company. It's the company has only established its own credit in the last five or six years as typical with most small construction companies. You buy a few trucks, you get a line of credit, right? But it wasn't to the extent that the company could do it on its own. So when I talked to this mortgage broker, he said, guess what, Lisa, I can help you with this. And he helped me identify a bank who then uh, connected me with the small business administration. So SBA, yep. this is what the SBA loves. They love these stories and they love these kinds of buyouts because this is what they're intended for. Yeah. It's a great use of the federal government and getting money with more than just clear financial ratios. They actually do take your story into account, right? And did you go through a similar interview process with them and explaining where you're at, where the future of the business is. How did all that go? And was it really hard to get the loan? Was it kind of hard or was it kind of easy for you? It wasn't hard relative to the people that I was working with. So I would say, if you go down this path, get people that you're comfortable with, right? Um, The story is, the story is very important. Like they, I was worried about it, but it's, it's better than, oh gosh, if, you know, the company tanked and you had two irresponsible managers, you know, that's it, a completely different story. These buyouts for small companies, this is exactly what the SBA is for. So the process itself was very time consuming. It took several months. I'm not going to lie. It was a long process. And in the meantime, I'm like, you know, we got this value that we negotiated and settled on. So I'm, you know, I was you got to be responsive. When you work with these lenders and these loan processors, you got to stay on top of that paperwork and you got to keep it moving along because it'll take several months. The loan itself, I mean, they wanted, it, it was not unlike buying a house, not unlike buying a house. And because the company was younger, I am a guarantor on the loan, but the company is ultimately responsible. Um, a thing I didn't think about was I did have to get a separate life insurance policy because now I'm 100% owner. So who's going to pay back that SBA loan if something happens to me? They want their money back, right? So, and that was that was fairly inexpensive and that was easy. I just called my local state farm guy who I have my personal, 
you know, policies with, and he was able to help me. So everyone was really on board with like moving you along the process. You don't have to know how to do everything on your own. They'll help you fill out the applications, you know, get the paperwork together, et cetera. But yes, do utilize the SBA. That's exactly what those loans are for. Yeah, that's that's such a great story. You, you gave us so much detail. I really appreciate you opening up, Lisa, and, and giving us the full story. It's helps, I think, demystify the process for so many people out there. But as I was listening to this and taking notes, and I've experienced, like I said, a similar type of situation, you just have to be ready for more things to pop up that you didn't imagine, right? It's, oh, we need this now, and we need that report or this financial, and we need to meet with this. And as soon as you think you got the loan or you, you got the deal done, now you got to go get the loan. And now it's this more three-month process of evaluation situation, but times 10. And you just have to be ready for it, right? You just have to be super responsive, have your ducks in a row, know your financials, and be able to grab those reports super quick and send them in. It, it sounds like that's what made the difference for you getting through this process. That's exactly right, Justin. I mean, the more responsive you can be to the people that you're working with and turn that information around, you know, um, the better off, the better off you are. And the faster the whole process will move. They're dependent on you to get the information and they've got a million other things to do. But so if you take your time, you know, and oh, by the way, interest rates were going up at the same time. Yeah. Oh my oh, gosh, right? <laughs> I was yeah, literally going to comment on that. I'm like, wow. Yeah. I'm sure every single day you were like, let's get this done. Let's get this done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. So Lisa, now you're 100% owner, you're licensed C2 contractor. You are a 100% woman owned business. Where do you take it from here? And what's your goals as you look out 10 years? Give us a little perspective on what the future looks like. So... Where we are now is I talked earlier about that, that process and that infrastructure and the tools and the behaviors. I brought all of that into West Coast Mechanical Insulation, specifically in the last 18 months. My partner was very resistant to anything new because they've been doing business as usual, right? This is how it's always been done. We hear that all the time. That doesn't happen in the insulation industry or this construction industry. So I brought, referring back to all that process and infrastructure that I had, I brought that forward with me. And the big fear for everybody is, what are we going to do about the sales guy that's missing, right? He was our executive sales guy. We had very little transition without so much as thinking about how to replace that person. Because we all know dynamic people. You can't just replace somebody. Um, it was, how do we set up the business in a way that we can be even more responsive to the customers? We can improve our sales process. We can improve our invoicing and our project management and be just as valuable, if not more, because now we're doing a better job at all of that. There was a lot of chaos in that transition time. People were calling my partner, right? That's the what not to right. do. Okay. So, and he was checked out. He was maybe deer hunting or doing something else. And, you know, rightfully so in starting to enjoy his vacation and not answering the phone. Part of that is, and I know, Justin, you want to talk about the future, but I'm thinking about now and kind of, I tell my guys this last year has been triage for us, mm -hmm. right? We've tightened up, we've righted the ship, we've tightened up the process. Um, we were very transparent with the customers. And as a women-owned business, knowing that you're going into a gendered industry anyway, right? Going in and meeting with customers and getting in front of any of our competitors' narrative around my partner was leaving, therefore his wife, his ex-wife is taking over. What does she know, right? I had to get out there as a female in front of other male CEOs and all of our customers and go, look, here's the value that we still bring. And oh, by the way, Mark, sure, he might be retired, but at the end of the day, we've got the same great crew out in the field right? We're still going to get your jobs done. So from a female perspective, that was the big hurdle I had to overcome in just feeling like, all right, girl, pull your big pants on and get out there and go talk to this male dominated industry. And you know what, guys, at the end of the day, for any females out there, embrace being a female, lean into it, have 
transparent conversations with your customers, because if you can come across as somebody who's credible, knows business, at the end of the day, we're not all in this to be buddies. We're all in this to make the dollar. Right. And I think that's where I came away after, you know, shaking in my boots and having these first few really tough discussions. And I think Justin, you know, I, I, I don't shy away easily, (laughs) but being very intimidated and unfortunately doubting myself, right. Can I really do this? And, um, friends pushing you, families pushing you going, you got this. And my employees, most of all saying, instead of saying, Lisa, you can do this. They said, we've got you, we've got this. So after a few discussions with customers as a female meeting in a very male dominated industry, go prove your value, be a good communicator, be transparent about what this means and what changes are happening in your business and why they should continue to call you. I could not agree more. That's all I have to say to that. We are very similar. I, I am in a very male dominated industry. I sell software to landscapers and Every single conversation I had, I feel like I had to spend five extra minutes in the beginning of the call building rapport that I knew something about the industry just because I was showing up as a female. So I preach what you're saying, continue to spread that message because it's so important. And I tell my team that all the time, just because you're female does not mean you can't sell in this industry. I 1000% agree with that. And again, lean into it, right? Yes. Sorry, Justin, but I think there's women (laughs) out there who have pretty good intuition. I mean, I get my best ideas at three o'clock in the morning and my gut just feels stuff. In addition, we like to talk. So I think I've got a little blue couch in my office more for the guys to like, you know, take a load off at the end of the day and put their feet up. Oh no, the guys all call it my, my therapist couch now which oh, I'm, okay. <laughs> I'm in, right? Let's go. Let's go. But yeah, I, you know, lean into, lean into that feminine energy and, you know, I'm just as smart as the next guy. Don't doubt that. You know, you can run the business, you know, you can build and maintain a team. You can, you know, I don't have to be the world's best mechanic on the tools. I hired my guys do that. I've got the world's best mechanics on the tools out there in my crew. So. Absolutely. I love that lean into it. And I do feel a little overwhelmed right now with the uh, amount of energy on the call, <laughs> but I love it. And at KD, we've had some amazing female leaders. We have some amazing female leaders who have been recognized in national magazines for what they've done in our industry and, and all kinds of awesome stuff. And I, I know they're going to be listening to this and I love Lisa and Maggie, both of you. I'd love to get your opinion on this. Because I think there's a lot of female leaders who have grown up in the business, in the finance HR hat, and they feel they need to kind of stay in those roles because operations is handled by the guys and operations is not where I should go. And and then sales also is maybe not where I should go because I know finance, I know HR. I am thinking of certain people in my business today who would be amazing salespeople, amazing operating managers, project managers, so on, department leaders. But I don't know if they they maybe don't trust themselves or maybe it's that just constant stereotype of that's the male, <laughs> that's the guy's job out in the field. So for someone listening to this thinking, man, I'd love to, I'd love to give this a shot. What type of advice would you have, Lisa, maybe hear from you and then Maggie, I'd love to get your take on this too for for the females that have been in that administrative type role their entire career, but are maybe getting tired of it and want something bigger and better. I, I say, go for it. I say, sit back, write down all of the skills that you know, you possess, figure out what you're good at. And oh, by the way, let's figure out what we want to do. Right. Don't, don't jump into another position because it's the only way you're going to grow your career or do something different or make more money. What is it that you want to do and what are you good at and embrace that? And if, if it is starting your own business or partnering with somebody, put the people in place, right? Have faith that your relationships that are just as strong as bro code out in the industry, leverage those relationships, build the people around you and don't, don't hesitate. There are going to be people that say, oh man, you know, they look at me and they say, oh yeah, you own your own company. What are you a hairdresser? 
or interior designer. And I just want to wring their necks. Of course, they would never in a million years guess commercial insulation, right? I tell people like, what? And then Justin, you know, like we've talked about the story is like, what? You're female. Yes. Yes. I 1000%. I am female and this is what I'm doing. And I'm managing a business. I'm managing a business. That's yeah. And when I met you, when I met you for the very first time, it was the same type of a surprise factor for me and then immediate respect. And and since then you and I have always had those really deep conversations around business and trades. And you've shared so many great things with me, including the, uh, the Amex card trick that has got me <laughs> yeah. all the points I could want to spend. So yeah, thanks mm-hmm. for that. Yep. Yeah. I would say my take on it is imposter syndrome is real. And I feel like you need to acknowledge it. So if you're that person thinking, oh, I could never do this because I'm female, or I could never do this because I don't have these skills, like, okay, acknowledge that that, that those feelings are real and then squash them, prove them wrong. What I hear a lot being female in sales, but also being a female in leadership is that females are too emotional or there's a lot of emotion behind a female. So what what is seen as emotional female is, is seen as passion in males and I feel that there's absolutely nothing wrong with being emotional. Having emotions means you cared and you want what fosters a good culture at a company are leaders that care. So I I feel that's why more and more companies are getting females into leadership roles because they have this unique way of caring, but also moving on to the next thing because they have to, because that's how our brain works. We have a million different things rolling through our brains at all different times. I make a joke as I, I lay in bed at night, Lisa, I have three young kids for context and I'll lay in bed. And I'm like, okay, well, does this person have this lunch ready? And um, is this done for work? And, oh, my husband has this tomorrow. And my husband's like, just go to bed. No, that's not how our brain works. Our brain <laughs> operates <laughs> a thousand beats per a thousand miles an hour all the time. And so I feel like imposter syndrome's real. Definitely embrace it, but also prove it wrong is my advice to them. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. You, you're going to tell me I can't do something. Well, watch yeah. hold my ear as they say. <laughs> Right. I literally, I literally <laughs> just that. shot Justin a text on the side when you were talking talking about being a female in a male dominated industry, and I said, "Hold my beer." So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> oh, great, love it. That's great. That's great. Uh, yeah. This is Ooh. such great conversation too, and I, I can just hear the inspiration and that deep, really stomach churning desire that you both have to not just move your careers but also to impact those around you. And I just got to say, this is amazing stuff that you guys are sharing. So thank you. Yeah. So <laughs> as we um, end the episode, we always like our guests to bring a trade secret. So something that you have learned through your years of working, whether it be in high tech or in commercial insulation, what it be, um, we ask you to bring something that you've just learned from your time on the job. And so would you mind sharing the trade secret that you brought with us, Lisa? So I've, I've actually thought about this because I, 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 in listening to your other podcasts, I knew that this was coming and unfortunately I'm not Jeff with a really cool five cylinder, you know, business energy, <laughs> but I'm going to talk about more of what not to do as a small business owner. Cause there's one thing that's really important um, that I've personally learned in this transition and it's, and it's easy to do as a small business, but really look at the dependencies, the success of your business has, and are any of those dependencies on one individual, one person, right? Is it, you have one sales guy. And with that sales guy is the cell phone number that you started the business with 16 years ago, right? You might not have the resources or the team size yet to offset some of those dependencies, but look at what are some of, just take a minute and think about the different tools that you can use, or can you set up, you know, my first piece of advice, get a separate phone number for your business. Don't let it be your, your personal cell phone number for so many reasons, right? One, you'll never have vacation ever again, but two, if something happens to that individual, you need a distributed model for people to come in and be able to respond to those customer requests, 
right? So if it's one person has all the contacts, one person has all of the emails, one person has the, the main phone number or the main email for the company, figure out a way to offset that, right? Make it go on to Google Workspace, pay the $9.99 a month and create an, an alias for customers to reach out, whether it's, you know, proposals or bids, ours is bids. So we went from having one email that all of our customers knew with one individual responding. But when that re individual goes off and decides to retire or God forbid something happens to them, your, your, your business is now stuck, right? You are hugely susceptible for failure. So um, I would just say, remove those dependencies on a single individual cross pollinate when you can and, um, you know, spend, a, spend an hour a week with your leadership team to make sure everybody knows what everybody else is doing and where you're at. Like, just do those one-on-ones, just get that team together once a week. We have a board meeting every Tuesday at 10 AM and we go through the jobs and my general foreman are there. My project manager's there. It's a great time to throw some invoices out to the customers, do some progress billings, but we all know exactly what's going on with the projects and our customers and billings. And I share the financial updates with them and just, you know, re re remove those dependencies on any individual. That is such good information and advice of having those redundancies built in so that no matter who it is in the business, they are always replaceable, including yourself and maybe including myself, yourself. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. as you, I'm sure as businesses start off, it's, you know, you're just a one man show or one woman show and you're just getting going and that's normal. But as you scale, it's easy to forget about this need to have redundancies and change the email. So for those listening, if you've recently grown your business from half a million or maybe a hundred thousand to a million or two or four, it's time. It's time mm -hmm. to remove yourself as the sole point of contact. It's time to get that office email. No more abc.com at Gmail. It's like, get your real website mm -hmm. going and get, get professional. So that's great, Lisa. I appreciate that. We might have to have you back on and dive into how you operate meetings and everything else. Cause it sounds like you have a pretty good process and we didn't even really get to talk about sales, but big takeaway is have a sales playbook and share it with your entire team. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And don't underestimate the, the entire sales process, right? So what it looks like and how you communicate to customers, how you communicate with them face-to-face. -face. I don't really focus on lead flow as much because we are kind of, we have a finite set of customers and we work off of our reputation. Um, you know, Kelly was, one of your previous podcasts talking about marketing and, you know, you guys talked about the sense of like rundown trucks and this is all that professional image, right? This is all brand equity. Do your trucks look nice? You guys, do you, are you guys wearing, you know, decent looking shirts? They had, does he have your brand? Cause that's, that's the best marketing and promotion you can have out there from a sales perspective is the work your crew does. Heck yeah. You know, all incentivize my guys just for getting jobs because they're wearing their shirts and they get us new business. So, yeah. but yeah, yeah, get rid of the Yahoo email address, get a legit, go to <laughs> Gmail, pay 16 bucks, get your workspace set up. Right. And then plan for the future. You're just setting it up for success and distributed models later. Oh, I love it. This is so good. And, and I just want to say before we wrap is you are a 100% commercial company and you just talked about nice trucks and uniforms and branding so many people I talk to are, oh, we're commercial. So it doesn't matter. We don't have to have a website. We don't have to do marketing, but people make decisions at all levels, commercial, residential, doesn't matter where you are. So uphold that brand. Sounds like Lisa, you guys have done a great job doing that. That's, I like to keep the guys in good looking swag. They think it's because I'm a cool boss. I'm like, it's all about promotion, baby. All about marketing, the guys. Well, Lisa, congratulations on everything you're doing. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, we're excited to see where you take things, especially now that you're fully running the ship. Thank you. Thank you both for having me on. It was a pleasure sharing with you. And I look forward to the next podcast. I can listen on my commute next week from you guys. Not me. I don't want to listen to myself. <laughs> <laughs> it's dropping on Monday. Every Monday it'll be dropping. So stay oh, tuned. Oh boy. Okay. Yes. All right, guys. Have a great day.